0: Welcome to Barry Pirro's Haunted Happenings Podcast, where I share in-depth stories of the paranormal, the supernatural, and the unexplained. So turn off your lights, sit back, and prepare. There are a lot of cities, towns, and villages in the United States, and some have some pretty unusual names. If life is a little too exciting for you, try taking a trip to boring Oregon. Or if you blush easily, you'd fit right into the town of Embarrass, Minnesota. If you're klutzy, you might want to settle down in Accident, Maryland. You can be anonymous in Nameless, Tennessee, or grab a cup of joe in Hot Coffee, Mississippi. And while you would probably want to spend an extended vacation in Intercourse, Pennsylvania, I really don't want to know what the residents of Hump Tulips, Washington are up to. Well, All of these places have great names, but the names of some towns are forever associated with the events that happen there. Try not to think of UFOs or aliens when someone brings up the name Roswell, or of witches when you hear the name Salem. But what's the first word you think of when you hear the name Amityville? Horror, of course. The Amityville Horror by Jay Anson was published in 1977. It tells the story of the Lutz family who purchased a home in Amityville, Long Island, where a young man had killed his entire family. Just 28 days after moving in, terrorizing paranormal activity forced the Lutz family to flee the home, leaving everything they owned behind. In 1979, the book was made into a movie starring James Brolin and Margot Kidder. And since then, no fewer than 20 movies and countless books with the name Amityville have been released. Noted paranormal investigators of the time visited the house, and they swore that the horrifying stories about it are true. Ed and Lorraine Warren, now famous for their portrayal in The Conjuring movies, were among the first to visit the home in Amityville, and world-renowned ghost hunter Hans Holzer also conducted an investigation there. While many believe that terrifying things really did happen to the Lutzes after they moved into the home, skeptics think that the paranormal activity portrayed in the original book were totally fabricated, that it was all just a lie, a scheme to profit from the book and movie deals. As for the paranormal investigations, some believe that both the Warrens and Holzer exaggerated about the extent of their involvement in the case, or that their claims and conclusions were simply preposterous and easily disproved. Over the years, a plethora of conflicting accounts have been written about the Amityville horror case, and now that all of the key players have passed away, it's nearly impossible to get to the bottom of the story but by focusing on first-hand interviews with the Lutzes, the Warrens, Hans Holzer, and others connected with the case, I hope to dispel some widely held rumors about it and to help untangle the intricate history of the Amityville horror. (laughs) The legend of the house in Amityville, New York is really three stories, the murders, the experiences the Lutz family claimed to have had while living in the house, and the theories of the paranormal investigators. So as grim a place as it is to start this journey, we must begin with the murders. On November 13, 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr. killed his parents and his four siblings at their home at 112 Ocean Avenue in the town of Amityville, Long Island. The names and ages of the victims were Ronald Sr., 43, Louise, 43, Dawn, 18, Allison 13, Mark 12, and John Matthew 9. All were shot at point blank range with a 35 caliber Marlin rifle. <laughs> On the morning that the murders took place, Ronald DeFeo Jr., whom everyone called Ronnie or Butch, showed up to work in the service department at his family's Buick dealership. But oddly, When his boss arrived at 6.45 a.m., he found Ronnie asleep behind the wheel of his car in the parking lot. His boss asked why he hadn't brought his father's car in for service as he had planned. Ronnie said that he left the house without his key and the door locked behind him when he left. He didn't want to wake the family, so he decided to drive his own car to work that day. Ronnie worked until 2.30 p.m., then left for the day. Throughout the remainder of the day, Ronnie told various friends that he got into a fight with his parents and that he got locked out of his house. He made a point of calling home in front of his friends and of telling them that no one was answering. At 6.30 p.m., Ronnie showed up at a local bar. He was visibly distressed and witnesses later said that he looked as if he had been crying. He called a friend outside and said, ''You have to help me. Someone shot my mother and father.'' He and a group of five young men jumped into a car and headed over to the DeFeo house. When they arrived, the front door was open, apparently left that way after Ronnie's hasty exit before going to the bar. The men entered the house, but Ronnie refused to go inside. When they walked upstairs, they witnessed a horrific scene. Both of Ronnie's parents lay dead in their bed. His father lay on his stomach with a bullet wound in his back, and his mother's body was also face down and was covered with a blanket. The group ran downstairs and called the police. When they arrived, they discovered the bodies of the four children dead in their beds, all laying face down. The medical examiner would later determine that the DeFeo family bled to death due to the gunshot wounds. Autopsies revealed that the parents were shot twice, and each of Ronnie's siblings were shot once. Mysteriously, neither of the neighbors who lived on either side of the house heard the gunshots that morning. But what is totally baffling is that none of the family members woke up during the time that the others in the house were being shot. All six victims appear to have died in their sleep without any sign of a struggle. The following morning, 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo Jr. confessed to the crime and was arrested and charged with murder. He told the police, Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. He said that after killing his family, he took a bath and changed his clothes. He told the police where they could find the blood-stained clothes and the Marlin rifle. Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s trial began on October 14, 1975, and his lawyer mounted an insanity defense. Ronnie insisted that he killed his family in self-defense because he heard their voices plotting against him. When his lawyer interviewed him about the events the night of the murders, Ronnie said that he had taken drugs and had been watching a war movie on TV. When the movie was over, he said that he heard members of his family talking in the other room and that they were conspiring to kill him. Then he claimed that a female with black hands gave him the rifle and that he then went upstairs and shot (laughs) everyone. I shot my father first, he said. Then I crossed over and went to my mother's side of the bed. After that, I tell you honestly, I couldn't stop if I wanted to. I couldn't put the gun down. On November 21, 1975, DeFeo was found guilty on six counts of second-degree murder and sentenced to six sentences of 25 years to life. Over the years, all of his appeals and requests to the parole board were denied. Many believed that Ronnie was possessed at the time that he committed the murders, but during an interview conducted at the prison decades later, he laughed off the possession theory, saying, Some priest was in the courtroom watching my performance on the witness stand. Based on my courtroom performance, he said that he thought that I had to be possessed by the devil. During a primetime interview, he said that he lied when he said that he had heard voices commanding him to kill, and that he was only trying to create a better insanity plea. In 1987, years after he was imprisoned, Ronnie claimed in an interview that his sister Dawn and two accomplices killed the family that night. He said that when he came to his senses and saw what his sister had done, he shot her. No charges in the case were ever made as a result of those claims or of the many other people Ronnie blamed for the murders over the years. Ronald DeFeo Jr. died in prison on March 12, 2021, so we may never know the real story of what happened that night. But one misconception that many people have about the murders was that the DeFeo family were the typical happy American family and that Ronnie just snapped one day and killed his parents and siblings. The truth is, they were an extremely dysfunctional family, and Ronnie was a serious drug addict. Ronald DeFeo Sr. was physically, verbally, and mentally abusive towards his entire family. His two main targets were his wife, Louise, and his oldest son, Ronnie. The abuse was so bad that Ronnie's friends were afraid to go to the DeFeo home. A few had witnessed Ronald Sr. fly into a rage and hit both his wife and Ronnie. During police interviews, one of Ronnie's friends referred to the DeFeo home as a crazy house. He said that every time he would go over there, the family were always yelling at each other. As Ronnie got older, his temper became even worse than his father's, and his behavior became violent and unpredictable. When he was in high school, his parents sent him to a psychiatrist. That didn't help, so they tried to pacify him by giving him anything he wanted, but the problems only got worse. The violent fights continued, and Ronnie's uncontrollable behavior led to him being thrown out of school at age 17. That same year, he started using LSD and heroin. A few weeks before the murders, Ronnie stole $20,000 from his father's car dealership. He was also on probation for having stolen an outboard motor. The police officers who questioned him about it noted that he was uncooperative and violent. That same week, he threatened his father with a gun during one of their many arguments. During the altercation, he actually pulled the trigger, but luckily, the gun jammed. Now, Ronnie DeFeo was clearly guilty of killing his family. But how do we get from a mass murder to a house of supernatural horrors? After the DeFeo murders, the house sat vacant for more than a year because no one would consider buying a house where six people had been murdered in cold blood. But all of that changed in 1975 when a real estate agent showed George and Kathy Lutz the house. They were impressed with the house, and especially with the price. But it wasn't until the real estate agent showed them the house a second time that she told them about the DeFeo murders. She asked if this would affect their decision. George and Kathy discussed the matter with the whole family, and they decided that it would not be a problem. In an interview, George explained why they bought the house in spite of its dark past. We had looked at 40 or 50 homes before this, he said. The house was listed for $80,000, but it was realistically worth around 125000 It was 4,000 square feet, had a full basement, it was on the water with a boathouse, it had a pool, the craftsmanship, the workmanship, the quality of the house, it was everything we were looking for. When Kathy first walked into that house in the foyer, her whole face lit up, the biggest smile you can imagine. She was home. This was where she wanted to live. But it wasn't a snap decision by any means. We went back and saw the house a number of times and talked about it at length as a family. Now, as if buying a house where six people were murdered in cold blood wasn't creepy enough, some of the DeFeo family's furniture was included as part of the deal for an extra $400. Specifically, The dining room set, Don DeFeo's bedroom set, Ronnie DeFeo's bedroom set, and a TV chair. All of the beds where the victims were found had been disposed of, but honestly, why would anyone want to keep the bedroom set of one of the murdered children and of the person who murdered his entire family? And so, on December 19th, 1975, just 13 months after the DeFeo family were murdered in their beds, George and Kathy Lutz moved into the house with their three children, Daniel 9, Christopher 7, and Missy 5. And according to the Lutzes, there were unsettling occurrences from the very beginning. Prior to moving in, a friend had suggested that they have the house blessed. George knew a Catholic priest named Father Ralph Pecoraro, so he contacted him and asked if he would bless the house. Father Ralph came to the house the day the family moved in, and while the Lutzes unloaded their rented moving van, he entered the house and began the blessing alone. In 1979, Father Ralph gave an interview on the TV show In Search Of about his experiences that day. He said, I was blessing the sewing room, and it was really cold in there. I thought, gee, that's peculiar, because it was really a lovely day out. It was winter, yes, but it didn't account for that kind of coldness. So I started sprinkling holy water, and I heard a rather deep voice behind me say, Get out! It seemed so directed toward me that I was really quite startled. At one point, I felt a slap on my face, and there was nobody there. Now, interestingly, in early interviews, the Lutzes repeat Father Ralph's story of the slap and the voice telling him to get out. But in a 2002 interview, George seemed to make less of the experience. He said, When Father Ralph came out, he asked us what we were going to use one bedroom for, which was on the second floor in the back. There was something about the room that made him uncomfortable, and he managed to communicate that to us without any alarm or anything. Kathy explained to him that she was going to use it as a sewing room, and he said that that was fine. The family later found out that two of the DeFeo boys were killed in this room. Days after blessing the house, Father Ralph tried to call George and Kathy to warn them to be careful in the house, but he was never able to get through because of mysterious interference on the telephone. Likewise, whenever the Lutzes tried to call the priest, they would only hear static. About a week after moving in, George and Kathy were in the living room together when Kathy experienced something unusual. We used to do transcendental meditation, George explained, and once while we were meditating in the living room, Kathy's hand was touched. She described it as a comforting feeling, not something to be frightened of. And it didn't happen again. Around this time, George began waking up in the middle of the night for no reason. He said, I would often wake up at around 3.15 a.m. I'd get up and check on the kids, check on the doors, or just walk around. I would also check the boathouse door. I'd go out there, and more often than not, I'd find that the side door was open, so I'd have to shut it and lock it again. George didn't know it at the time, but the DeFeo murders occurred at 3.15 a.m. Over time, more odd things began happening around the house. At first, they were just little things like the sound of footsteps, the clock radio going off at all hours of the day, even though the alarm hadn't been set and the sound of a door slamming somewhere in the house. One day, George and Kathy heard their five-year-old daughter, Missy, having a conversation with someone in her room. When they asked her who she was talking to, she said it was her friend. George explained, she had what we consider to be an imaginary friend that she called Jody. Jody had the ability to appear to her either as a very large pig, a very small pig, or a little boy. At the time, it was just one of those things that you put down to a kid's imagination. But one night, George saw something that made him think that perhaps Jody wasn't just an imaginary friend. During one of his sleepless nights, he went out to the boathouse at 3.15 a.m. and once again he found the door open. He locked the door, then headed back to the house. As he was walking, he happened to glance up at Missy's window, and he saw an adult-sized person moving around in her room. When he got back to the house, he checked on Missy, but she and everyone else in the house was asleep. On other occasions, George saw eyes looking down at him from Missy's window. He also said that there were times when they would see eyes looking into the window from outside of the house. And sometimes when he walked by the room, he would see the rocking chair rocking by itself as Missy sat on her bed talking to her imaginary friend. But the Lutzes weren't the only people to experience things in the house. George explained, we would have friends come over and visit and we'd sit around in the kitchen and there would be noises up overhead. When you have other people come in your house and tell you you're not crazy, you start to question things. On the second floor was a room the couple called the sewing room. Psychics who investigated the house would say that this was the worst room in the house. And like Father Ralph, they warned that no one should ever stay in it. The sewing room was one of the two rooms in the house that had a special problem. Flies. During a 1976 interview on ABC's Good Morning America, Kathy said, We had hordes of flies that would appear in two rooms, and no matter how many times you would kill them, they would reappear. If we had two or three or four, that could be commonplace, but I'm talking over a hundred, over a hundred at one time. Then you'd go around and kill them, they'd be lying on the floor, you'd come back an hour later, and there would be even more of them. After the flies, a strange slime-like substance began showing up all over the house. George said, It was a gelatin kind of substance. We thought the children had somehow mixed something up and spilled it around the house. But the next time it happened, the kids were at school and there was just no way to explain how it got there. And as if gooey slime wasn't bad enough, something began to stain the toilets. It wasn't in the water, George explained. The china itself turned black. At first it was one bathroom, then another, then another... By the time the investigators got there, a number of them were still black. It wasn't a problem with the water. The water was normal. There was never any reasonable explanation. During the same interview, Kathy added, "...the keyholes would ooze a black substance which was of the same nature and appearance as that which was on the porcelain in the toilets." When the investigators came on March 6, 1976, the substance was still on the keyholes, but they weren't able to obtain samples because it was never in a moist condition. We had several repairmen come in, Kathy said. The telephone repairman came in three times because each time we tried to communicate with the priest, we would run into faulty connections. We also had extreme fluctuations in heat and cold, between 40 and 50 degree fluctuations. The servicemen came to the house three times. One time he heard the furnace running, but there was no heat in the house. Another time the thermostat was set to 40, but the temperature in the house was 80. The Lutzes told their friends about the problems they were having. George said that one friend had similar problems in his house that evidently was haunted. You should go through the house and bless it yourself, he told us. Go through each room, open a window, say the Lord's Prayer, and tell whatever is there to leave. It'll go, he said. Well, that seemed like a reasonable solution, especially since it had worked for him. Well, we did that a couple of times, and it didn't work. In fact, it got worse. There were more noises, more smells, more drips from the door handles. We'd be lying in bed at night, and we'd hear the front door, which has a very distinct sound, slam shut. We'd run downstairs to see what it was, and we'd find the dog asleep right next to the door. It didn't wake up, so it wasn't the actual door slamming. It was the sound of the door. Once, when George and Kathy were blessing the house, something alarming and totally unexplainable happened. Their son Daniel was leaning his hand on the windowsill as his parents were blessing one of the rooms when the window suddenly slammed shut on his fingers. George explained, His fingers were flattened from the window shutting on them. They were so flat that there was no doubt that he had to go to the hospital. But by the time we got him dressed to go to the hospital, his fingers were fine. After a few weeks, the Lutzes noticed that a ceramic figurine began to move of its own accord. George said, My wife had given me a statue of a ceramic lion. It would kind of move around when you weren't watching it. You would leave the room, no one else would be in there, you'd go out of the house, come home, and it would have moved. Sometimes it moved just a little bit, other times it would change rooms. We actually threw it out at one point, and it came back into the house on its own. It was there the next day again, inside. The kids said that they didn't bring it in. The 1976 Amityville horror movie and subsequent films based on the book used something called The Red Room as an effective horror setting. The book claims that George Lutz discovered a hidden room painted entirely red behind a secret panel. When he shone his flashlight around the red-painted walls, he was nearly overcome by the stench of blood and human excrement. During an interview around the time of the book release, George said that it was Kathy who discovered the room. She called me one day when I was at the office and said, "'You won't believe what I just found—a room behind a bookcase. Our dog Harry would not go in there. He would not go into this part of the house.' There were smells that came from there. It smelled like an open sewer pipe most of the time, but not always. Like many of the details outlined in the book, the appearance and dimensions of the Red Room was highly exaggerated. In reality, it wasn't a room at all. It was actually a small storage area approximately four feet wide by five feet high adjacent to the kitchen pantry. The space was made of cinder blocks, which were painted red. In a TV interview, Patty Camarado, a friend of Allison DeFeo, one of the children murdered in the house, remembered playing in the space when she was a child. They said that this door was never here, she said, indicating the pantry door, but it always was. Patty opened the door, then ducked down into the storage area and said, Here it is. It's just an ordinary storage space with some red paint on it. There was never any feeling of spirits present or ghosts or any sort of thing like that, she said. It was just a play area where we used to keep toys. In later interviews, George admitted that it was just a small space, but he said that they called it a room because they didn't know what else to call it. Kathy would later explain that the bookcase wasn't a large unit, just a movable bookcase on wheels that was in front of the pantry door. The longer the Lutzes stayed in the house, the worse the activity became. George reported seeing glowing red eyes staring out of the upstairs windows, and he claimed that heavy doors came off of their hinges. Some of the strangest activity centered around Kathy. Her face and hair at times would take on the appearance of a 90-year-old woman. George said, She turned into an old crone right in front of me, a really ugly old woman, and it literally took hours and hours for it to go away. It happened again at Kathy's mom's house after we moved out of the house and moved in with her. George said that Kathy could see the change in her face when she looked in the mirror, and her mother also witnessed the transformation. The strangest occurrence that the couple reported on the last night the family spent in the house was that Kathy levitated. George said, that night we were both in bed i was awake and kathy was asleep and she lifted up off the bed and went towards the wall away from me i had to grab her to keep her from going off the bed by the last week we were there george said there were nightly occurrences noises odors coming and going kathy was being touched from behind by some unseen person missy was talking to herself and telling us about her friend jody She said that Jody told her that we were going to live in the house forever. The last night was the worst. There was a storm going on outside, a big storm. Later, it was said that there was no storm there, but we know what we experienced. And as far as we're concerned, there was a huge storm that night. The noises downstairs on the first floor were just incredible. It sounded like 50, a hundred people downstairs tuning up instruments, slamming doors. The front door would slam. The closet doors across from our bed would open and close. The boys' beds were being lifted up and slammed down overhead. But we couldn't get out of bed to do anything about it because we just couldn't move. So on January fourteenth, 1976, just 28 days after moving in, the family fled the house, leaving all of their belongings behind. The Lutz's financial records showed that at the time they left, their mortgage payments were not only up to date, they had been prepaid a few months in advance. So the theory that they left and never returned because they just couldn't afford the house just doesn't make any sense. In fact, the Lutzes said that they had all intentions of moving back in, We never intended to give the house up, George said. Even after we moved out, we intended to find out what was wrong and move back in there. That's why the investigation was held, and people from different psychic research groups were called and asked to come in. But after the investigations were over, the family never returned to the house. As we'll see, none of the paranormal investigators seemed to give advice on how to fix the problem with the house. They simply ran their investigations, said that the place was either haunted or that there was an evil entity present, then left. In the end, George and Kathy signed the house over to the bank, and they donated most of their personal belongings to charity. In our next episode, we'll hear about the investigation that Ed and Lorraine Warren conducted and how a dark entity followed them home. Was the house actually built over an ancient Native American burial ground? Hans Holzer thought so, and he believed that the spirit of an angry Indian chief was to blame for the DeFeo murders. We'll also explore some of the challenges about the veracity of the Lutz's statements, and I'll share my theories about what I think actually happened at the Amityville Horror House. Until then... Be prepared to be scared.